the Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then I turned, key verse, then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws which he set before us by his servants the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers uh, who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice." And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O oh, oh, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O oh Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. 
O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks." Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Hard to understand, but the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again we have come to your word, and today we find a great passage that is so simple and yet so profound. Lord, open our ears to truly hear. We ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit, use this passage to help us know you better, love you more, and live in and by your grace. Teach us what it means to pray in the scriptural manner, and may our faith match our words. Do this for each of us this morning. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. been a lot of stuff written on Daniel 9 and most of it isn't any good well you may not have heard of this but according to a recent spate of articles uh, this week the church is doomed sad but true Michael Spencer the internet monk that's what he calls himself has written an op-ed piece in the Christian Science Monitor entitled, The Coming Evangelical Collapse. Michael Spencer is a writer and communicator living in a Christian community in Kentucky. He describes himself as, quote, a post-evangelical Reformation Christian in search of a Jesus-shaped spirituality. I don't know what that means either, but it sounds very spiritual. And this essay that the Christian Science Monitor published was adapted from a series uh, on his blog, internetmonk.com. 
And he essentially argues that because evangelicals have linked themselves to the culture war, and because the culture war is now turning against evangelicals, that brand of Christianity will collapse within the next 10 years. In this doomsday view, he lets us know, these are quotes, within two generations, evangelicalism will be a house deserted of half its occupants. Between 25 and 35% of Americans today are evangelicals. He doesn't support that number. I don't doubt it. In the Protestant 20th century, evangelicals flourished, but they will soon be living in a very secular and religiously antagonistic 21st century. I thought we already were living in very secular, but... This collapse will herald the arrival of an anti-Christian chapter of the post-Christian West. Intolerance of Christianity will rise to levels many of us have not believed possible in our lifetimes, and public policy will become hostile towards evangelical Christianity, seeing it as the opponent of the common good. Millions of evangelicals will quit. Thousands of ministries will end. Christian media will be reduced, if not eliminated. Many Christian schools will go into rapid decline. I'm convinced the grace and mission of God will reach the ends of the earth, but the end of evangelicalism as we know it is close. End quote. Now, to give Michael Spencer credit, he does diagnose some severe problems pretty accurately. He lists seven reasons why the evangelical church will fall apart. His first is probably most accurate reason, he says, the evangelical investment in moral, social, and political issues has depleted our resources and exposed our weaknesses. Not totally sure about that. Being against gay marriage and being rhetorically pro-life will not make up for the fact, here's the main point, that massive majorities of evangelicals cannot articulate the gospel with any coherence. And when you look at the evangelical church as a whole, I think he's got a point. There are thousands, probably millions of American Christians who can't tell you what they believe or why. And that's a real problem. And the rest of the reasons are way shakier and almost all of his proposed remedies are terrible. Just my opinion. Of course, once Mr. Spencer's editorial was printed and then reprinted in the Drudge Report, the blogosphere lit up. Everybody responded to our coming collapse and most of these responses were, in fact, even worse and less thoughtful than what they were responding to. Why? And I read, I printed out maybe 10 of these things. Because in everyone's rush to analyze the church, the culture, evangelicalism, biblical Christianity, reformed Christianity, theology in general, etc., and so on, they all forgot the biggest single reason the church is still here and will continue to be here. And that reason is God. Yes, hard to believe, I know. Who would have thunk it? The answer to, for, and about the church is God. Hope that's not a surprise. If you think about it, the church has a long history of doing stupid, dumb, sinful things, and yet by the grace and mercy of God... We're still here. And I could be wrong, but I don't think the church has yet exhausted its repertoire of stupid, dumb, sinful things. And yet I expect we'll still be around a long time from now.
The church exists not because we get it, do it, teach it all right all the time, but because the sovereign creator God of the universe has ordained the church as his means of reaching his people with his gospel about his son, however crazy that may sound. Now, in the midst of all these editorials, commentaries, responses, and blogs, there was one sentence that jumped out at me. And I kept going back to it again and again. Initially, I was going to use this for another sermon later on. But this sentence kept bringing me back and said, I got to address this. And it was simply this. He wrote, we need a new evangelicalism that learns from the past and listens more carefully to what God says about being his people in the midst of a powerful, idolatrous culture. I thought, aha, I know someone from the past who has something to teach us about being the people of God in the midst of a powerful, idolatrous culture. And of course, that person is Daniel. And so as we continue our study of Daniel, I'd remind you, In the first half of Daniel, we see somewhat of a spiritual biography of Daniel as he's placed in crisis after crisis, and he responds by God's grace in such a way that he honors God. And then when you move to the second half of Daniel, the scene changes a bit. It's not unlike the book of Revelation, where the first uh, part of the book focuses on the war between the church and the world, and then the second part shows you what's uh, under and behind that war between the church and the world. And so also in Daniel, in the spiritual biography of the first half, um, we now move into the second half and look behind that. And we find an account of what is behind the biography of Daniel, the spiritual experiences that are behind and underlying the public life of Daniel. Now, this entire book is about the blessing of knowing God. Daniel is truly one of the great models for what it means to know God. We talk about knowing God, and uh, most of us, I would think, would say that we would want to know God, that that would be a good thing. And if you want to know what a person looks like who knows God, Daniel would be a good person to look at. He's resolute. He loves God's word. He's obedient. He stood against the trends of the culture in his day, and he knew the blessings of knowing God. And we're going to learn today it's because Daniel's a man of prayer. And prayer reveals something very deep about each one of us that perhaps nothing else in the Christian life reveals. Daniel 9 reveals Daniel to us in a way that no other passage in this book does. It's one of the longest recorded prayers in the Bible. And it has a lot to tell us about what God says about being his people in the midst of a powerful, idolatrous culture. So with that in mind, and since we're not following this in chapter order, but chronologically, let's move uh, into chapter 9. And we're going to look at how Daniel survives spiritually all these years in the midst of this powerful, idolatrous culture. And the first thing we see here is that Daniel is inspired to pray. He's inspired to pray. We already know from everything else we've read that 
Daniel prays in times of crisis. But here we learn that such prayer is an expression of a life of regular, disciplined praying. Here in chapter 9, Daniel recognizes there's a critical time has come for God's people, and that realization grew out of his regular times of study in the Bible. So the first thing we see is his prayer life is inspired, and it's inspired by his reading of the Bible. Look at verse 2. I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, he's been reading the prophet Jeremiah. And he learns this, and he says, uh, goes on and says that a number of years must pass before the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And then it says, verse 3, he reads this in the Bible, he learns something from the Bible, then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer. Daniel is looking for the answer to the perennial cry of God's people who are in exile. How long, O oh Lord? We see that in Isaiah. It's actually a number of places in the Old Testament. And here he's reading the book of Jeremiah, the prophet, to find an answer to this question. And he finds the answer in the scriptures. Jeremiah 25 this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. These nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And also Jeremiah 29. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. A lot of people know that second verse, don't realize. It's in the context of the Babylonian exile. It's a promise to God. You think your life is terrible, but I haven't forgotten about you. I've got plans for you plans for a future and a hope. And Daniel is seeking to have his mind informed, his heart dominated by whatever God said about his current situation. Daniel's reaction to what he reads in scripture has great significance for us today. It reveals great understanding of the sovereignty of God and also of the responsibility of man. He knew that what God said was specific it's unconditional. It's something that God has ordained to pass. It will happen. And yet he doesn't say, well, if God's going to do it, then there's no need to pray about it. Rather, we find he devotes himself to prayer with one of the best descriptions of prayer I think you can find in the whole Bible. He says, then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer. And it's not ordinary or brief prayer. The text says it's accompanied by pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Now, God's sovereign purposes are never revealed in Scripture as excuses for personal laziness, but rather as incentives for us to act upon what we read. I'll give you an example. Matthew 28, Great Commission, uh, we, tells us there, uh, that all authority in heaven and earth had been given to Jesus. And that didn't mean that his disciples could just sit back and relax. Just the opposite. In fact, it 
obligated them to go out throughout the world with the gospel. Likewise, here in Daniel 9, when Daniel sees that God has given a promise about the length of the Babylonian captivity, he took it as his responsibility to ask the Lord to fulfill his promise. Did you think you could do that? You can ask God to keep his word. God, you have promised this. Make it happen. And Daniel recognizes that God employs means to achieve his ends. The preaching of the gospel is the means by which Christ's sovereignty over the nations will be fulfilled. And prayer for the restoration of Jerusalem is the means by which God's word through Jeremiah is going to be fulfilled. And so Daniel, in reading the Bible, is inspired to pray. And if you just learn that, this will be a good day. Read the Bible, makes you pray. I could say amen and go home, but there's lots more pages here. In response to the word of God, Daniel pours out his heart to the Lord. Since this is not only one of the longest prayers in the Bible, but one of the most instructive, let's take a look at what he actually says, what he actually prays. The first thing Daniel prays about is the inspirer of prayer. I'm not sure that's a word, but it seemed to fit. The inspirer of prayer. Daniel has this long prayer, and the longest part of the long prayer is about God himself and about our relationship to God. And there's a lot that we can learn uh, here about how to pray. And you see, first, Daniel starts with an invocation. Invocation is simply recognizing and acknowledging who God is and invoking or appealing for or soliciting his presence among us. It's one reason we start every one of our services with an opening prayer. If you go to our church website and you go uh, click on the link for worship, you'll find a sample bulletin and I'll have a brief explanation of what we're doing in each of the various elements of our worship service. Yes, there actually is a plan uh, as we go. And if you look down and you'll see where we list opening prayer, you'll read the following. Historically called the invocation. As sinners who are inclined not to worship God, we need to ask for help. We call upon or invoke God to be present with us to orient our hearts and minds toward him, acknowledging that we can only approach him through his son, Jesus Christ, and asking that he send his spirit who gives us the power to worship him in spirit and in truth, John 4, 24. And essentially, that's what Daniel is doing here. The focus of Daniel's invocation is on God's greatness and God's grace. He says, the Lord is the great and awesome God, verse 4. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, verse 7. The one who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, verse 15. This is a mighty and powerful God. And yet, this God is also a God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him, verse 4. 
faithfully fulfilling his promises to his people. He is a God to whom belong mercy and forgiveness, verse 9. In fact, both those words are in the plural in the Hebrew, suggesting God's repeated acts of mercy and forgiveness to rebellious people. And it's the mercy and forgiveness of God that form the basis for Daniel's prayer. And yet, if the God to whom Daniel prayed is faithful and righteous, the people of God, not so much. In fact, we've been exactly the opposite. They've been unfaithful and unrighteous. And so we see Daniel acknowledge that with a prayer of confession. You know, Rich started us this morning with a confession. Hopefully when you prayed those words along with him, you meant it. And here Daniel acknowledges this with a prayer of confession. Israel has repeatedly sinned and rebelled against this gracious and loving God. Look at verses 5 and 6. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name. And then again, a little farther down in verses 9 through 11, it says, For we have rebelled against him, have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. The contrast couldn't be greater between this faithful and holy God who had been true to all his promises and this faithless and unholy people who had broken all their commitments and rebelled. Under the terms of the covenant that God had made with his people at Mount Sinai, we see in Deuteronomy 28, such a combination can only have one result, the destruction of God's chosen city and the exile of God's chosen people. And because the Lord is faithful and just, he brought about this promise as well, making his people the object of scorn among the nations. And so we have Daniel confessing the sin of his people and acknowledging the justice of God's actions. There's no effort on Daniel's part to make excuses for sin, for his sin or for Israel's sin. He's not challenging the fairness of God's action. He says, God, you're right. We're sinful and you told us what would happen and it's happened. And yet there's not just a promise of judgment for sin, but there's a promise of a new beginning beyond that judgment. And when the rebellious exiles experience God's judgment and when they repent of their sin and they turn back to God, the Lord promises to restore them. We see that near the end of Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy 30. It says, When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you says, when you return and obey, God will gather and restore. And that's the response that Daniel's seeking. 
when he comes before the Lord with his petition. We have an invocation, we have confession, we have a petition. He asks that God would hear his prayer and show favor to his chosen city and his chosen people. Look at verses 17 and 18. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and his pleas for mercy. For your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. And notice he doesn't ask this because of any righteousness in himself. He doesn't say, we, we got the message, we've repented, we're good now. He doesn't say, we're going to be faithful again, promise never to do it again. Just the kids laughed then. He simply throws himself on the mercy of God and the honor of God's name. Look at verses 18 and 19. We do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. He says, delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. He appeals to the honor of God's name and to show the greatness of his grace and to vindicate the honor of his name. He's saying, Lord, you must once again redeem your people and restore them to yourself. And so Daniel prays with great confidence that God would hear his prayer, showing loving kindness to his people and restore his sanctuary. And Daniel could do this because he's asking the one who is the hearer of prayer, the hearer of prayer, verses 20 through 23. And here God does. Uh, Look at the text, starting at verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, he's finished his prayer, and now he's commentating. He says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin, the sin of my people Israel, presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Now, maybe that's pretty normal to you. Perhaps you pray like this and Gabriel shows up. It speaks to the weakness of my prayer life that that doesn't often happen to me. In fact, I can't remember that ever having happened, but I think it would be pretty cool, but it would be really scary. But look at this. Just look at the plain text. Daniel cries out to the Lord. Verse 18, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear, and hear, And an angel of the Lord, Gabriel, appears in confirmation that there is a God in heaven who hears our prayers. Daniel sought God's favor, and Gabriel comes to tell him, verse 23, you are greatly loved. I don't think it matters anything to Daniel what happens to him for the rest of his life. An angel of the Lord has showed up and said, Daniel, you are greatly loved. Quit worrying about everything else. 
He begged God in verse uh, 19, O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God. And before he even finished praying, he receives a response. In fact, Gabriel tells him a decree is issued from the throne room of heaven, verse 23, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy. Not only is the Lord God Almighty the hearer of prayer, but he's the one, the only one, who can come to us with the answer to prayer. The answer to prayer, verses 24 through 27. And this is where everybody likes to go because it's got all the weird, bizarre, cool stuff in it. So let's read it carefully. And I'm not promising I'm going to explain all the details. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. That's what's being done. Everything else is describing that verse. Verse 24 is the key verse here. Then he says, verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. And now it gets really clear. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put on an end to sacrifice an offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed and is poured out on the desolator. Got that? What is God saying? A day is coming when God would make all things right. And he tells us that. Verse 24, the key verse there, he says to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness. I'd like that. I would like there be an end to sin in my life. I'd really like it in your life. And God doesn't make clear the time. He mentions 70 weeks, or more literally, 77s. Some think... Uh, some think this means a literal period of 490 years. Others, like me, think this means a time of completeness since both 7 and 70 are numbers signifying completeness in the Bible. We see that in Matthew 18. Just to give you an example, one of the uh, great rules of learning from the Bible is uh, learn uh, Scripture interprets Scripture. So where else do we see this in the Bible? We see this in Matthew 18 in a passage on forgiveness. Jesus tells Peter, if you remember the story, to forgive his brother 70 times seven times. And nobody interprets that verse to mean that Peter had to forgive his brother 490 times, but on the 491st time you can draw the sword. Nobody thinks that. 
Jesus is making a point that Peter's perspective on forgiveness is far too small, and it needs to be greatly expanded. And so here, too, the angel is letting Daniel know that the time scale needed to do away with all transgressions to achieve complete restoration with, with, with God will arrive in due season, even though it's going to be long after Daniel's life. But it will accomplish everything that God has designed for it. Don't get all caught up in all the details and dates of these passages. They point us ahead to the fact that God is a covenant God who, according to the words of that same Jeremiah the prophet, will establish a new covenant with his people inaugurated by his son, the Messiah, Jesus. And his words were, in fact, confirmed by the destruction of the city and its sanctuary in the first century A.D., and with the coming of the Messiah Jesus into the world, especially with his death and resurrection, the 70th week has dawned. The victory over sin and death has been won. The new covenant of which Jeremiah spoke is now here, which, if you remember, Jesus called the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the remission of sins. You may have heard those words before. And with the coming of Christ... All the things that Daniel 9 anticipated have been accomplished in principle. Our sins are atoned for. Our transgressions have been removed. The word of the prophet is vindicated. However, this 70th week isn't over yet. The day of the Lord, uh, when God consummates history with the return, excuse me, with the return of Christ. And until that day, we still drink the cup of the new covenant, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. For Daniel, this was hundreds of years in the future, but it was a promise of God. And for us, it's still in the future, but no less than for Daniel, it's a promise of God. God is not in the business of instant Saints, people aren't like oatmeal. His time scale for the sanctification of his people is far larger than we can comprehend. God chooses to work through lifetimes, and God chooses to work through generations, and God chooses to work through the words of prophets and apostles who lived a millennium or two before us. And yet God promises that God's sinful people would be justified. They would be forgiven and accepted and restored and recreated. They would be made righteous, 1 Peter 2, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And that's true simply because he is the God of great grace. He is the God of great grace. We had a baptism last week. Maybe some of you were here. It was really cool. And I had a whole family down here, and I talked, and, and I called them this phrase, the trophies of God's grace. 
And do you think that going forward from now on that God's going to deal with them differently, that they're still going to need grace as they go forward, that you're still going to need grace as you go forward? Being a trophy of God's grace isn't a one-time, one-day, and it's over. We did the baptism. Don't worry about it anymore. We have lots of problems ahead of us. Your family has problems ahead of you. You have problems ahead of you. And it's going to be by God's grace that you're going to get through them just the way you've gotten through them before. Look at the way Daniel prays here. I really find this prayer amazing. And do you ever wonder why we don't pray like Daniel? I mean, it can't be that hard, can it? But for the most part, we don't. I think one of the reasons for that, there's probably lots of reasons, but certainly one of them is that we don't really think we're praying to the God of great grace. On the one hand, if we forget God's greatness, then our prayers are usually way too small. In fact, I find that my own prayers are almost always way too small. I don't find myself praying for a great and mighty work of God's spirit in our church or in our community or in our nation. I don't usually pray for a remarkable demonstration of God's power in our church. I forget God's greatness. I forget that he's the one who created all things out of nothing. I forget that he's the one who hung the stars in the sky and gave boundaries to the seas. I forget that he's the one who raises up kings and then brings them down again. God is great. But my prayers are small. On the other hand, if we forget God's grace, then our prayers are usually way too small again. You know, I'm often tempted to think that pretty much I'm beyond fixing. Sorry, God, I'm just too screwed up. And the more I see of my own heart, the more I know that I'm a sorry rebel and a wicked sinner. And I don't listen to God's laws and I don't take them to heart and I surely don't delight in them. And I know better. I read the Bible professionally. How great is my condemnation? But then I look out at you. (laughs) Things get really bad. Lord, these people you've given me, God, they're so screwed up. Look how sinful they are. They don't love their wives as Christ loved the church. They don't listen to their husbands as the church follows Christ. They're selfish and they lie and they say dumb, hurtful things even when they're trying to be nice. And they have all my bad habits. And I hate that when their lousy lives shows me my own sin. And the reality is that each and every one of us is a broken cistern a leaky vessel, damaged goods, cracked pots. And then, racked with despair and failing at prayer, I read these words. 
but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. The surpassing power of God's grace to do something with broken people. We don't just despair. We don't just sweep our sin under the rug and pretend things aren't so bad. But we remember God's grace and we confess our sin and throw ourselves on the mercy of God because it's true that I am a filthy sinner quite unfit for God's use and so are you. And yet this holy God reaches down into the muck and mire of my sin-stained life and sets my feet on a solid rock, sets his name upon you and me, calling us Christian and choosing us, makes us a lamb of his own flock, a sheep of his fold. My favorite biblical prayer, the one I can pray each and every day, the one I can pray in each and every situation, the one that's always true and never fails, is simply this. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Here's the motivation for real prayer. You don't get what you deserve. You get mercy And you do get what you don't deserve. You get grace. And so then we can honestly pray, Lord, I am utterly unfit to be your ambassador, but you have called me and sent me out to serve you. I cannot stand even for a moment in my own strength, and I have no words of my own to say. Lord, give me the strength to stand and the words to say. Accomplish your purposes through me and through this church, even though it's filled with other sinners like me. Build this church, build your kingdom in this place, not because we're worthy, far from it. Build your kingdom because your name is worthy. Build your kingdom because the people around here need to see your glory, and they'll never see it through our wisdom and our strength. They'll see your glory only if you demonstrate it through taking deeply flawed and tarnished people like us and making our lives extraordinary demonstrations of your grace. You notice at the beginning of this passage, we're told that Daniel, while he's reading Jeremiah, discovers the exile will be ending soon. He'd been studying Jeremiah, uh, chapters 25 and 26, 27, 28, 29, 30. And he's told the children of Israel from the time of the exile, there'd be 70 years in captivity. Daniel's been there a long time. We said he was probably a teenager when he went. It's now almost to the end of that 70 years. So we're talking about an 85-year-old guy. And he reads, there'll be a return. I think his response is startling. If you or I had heard in that same situation, the exile soon coming to an end, we call for a party in the streets. Gather all the exiles. God's going to liberate us. Daniel's response to reading that 
very specific information in the word of God. And to discerning that time is to go to the Lord in prayer. And he didn't stop praying when Darius issues a decree in Daniel 6, which we're going to see next Sunday. And Darius issues a decree that everyone should stop praying to anyone other than him, Darius, for 30 days. You, you got to remember, Daniel chapter 9 happens chronologically before Daniel chapter 6. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den in Daniel 6, but that happens chronologically after this prayer. No wonder Daniel refuses to stop praying. Gabriel's already met the man. God has answered his prayer. There is no one in the world that is going to stop Daniel from faithfully praying to the God who had comforted him and has already answered his prayer. Not lions, not kings, not decrees. No wonder he refused to stop praying. We have a God of great grace. Don't ever stop praying. Think about that. You really do need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close.